All right, welcome everybody to Rationalism and Mysticism, or Rationalism versus Mysticism, episode 13. And uh, I can't believe we're already up to this many, but uh, you know, it's, it's been a, a real privilege and a pleasure to learn all these things. And what I like to do uh, before we dive into the uh, continuing with the second half of what we did last week, which was addressing God's needs. And we mentioned, what does that mean for God to actually need something from us? Is it literal? Is it not? How do we interpret this? And we're going to go through a lot more traditional sources regarding what that means. But what I like to do always is I like to open your heart as much as I can before we delve in. Because whenever you're approaching this type of a topic, I think it's always important to go from head to heart and to move from just cerebral intellect more towards emotionality, towards intuition, and towards really feeling what's going on. Baruch Haba. So just in time, Sammy. Yeah, Great. It's right. So yeah, please. You can look on with me. So listen up to this. Yeah, by the way, I realize yeah. the class is better online than it is in person because you get the uh, the, the notes and everything. You get the I'm notes. sorry. Yeah. Oh, man, no, well, I, hope, you uh, I know I should, I should print them out. I really, you know, next time I'm going to try to print out a few, yeah, yeah, a few yeah, items. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. for sure. It's not really, by the way. It's way better yeah. in person. No, you know what it is. I, I don't. I don't. No, it's way better. I don't want to necessarily give you a paper because then you're looking down the whole time. It's but way it might help. It might you help. have to be. You have to be your. I don't know. That's right. You have to feel the energy. hundred percent, man. But it's a big bonus that you get to see the notes online. I'm so glad. All right, now you can look on next door, right here. So um, I want to just start off with a few quotes that really inspire me and open my heart. So one of them is from Thich Nhat Hanh, who just died. Um, know. You know, he was 95. Yeah, amazing Tibetan. Uh, he just died? Yeah. Before we start, yeah, no Google, yeah. gonna come. are you Please. worried about like, what's going on in the world? I've been talking to people that are like very worried. Are in the world? Yet, I mean, no, I spoke Russia, about it on Shabbat. I think the, I mean, yeah, you, my message on Shabbat. No, don't worry. Nothing. My message on Shabbat. No, I wanted to come. I heard you were speaking. I was very excited. But then I missed it. No, I don't worry about video it. video you're talking about Russia, Ukraine. Exactly February 22nd of 2014. Wow. It was like the same kind of like conflict between Russia, same conflict between Russia and, and Ukraine. Because like, like Russia has a little bit of a point kind of, mm -hmm. kind of point because they don't want to be invaded by Western terror. I hear you. You don't need Yeah. So yeah, so my, 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 what my response to that is, it's very much my message that I gave on Shabbat was <laughs> that the best thing we can do at this stage is just double down on love. You know, and even though we don't know what's, how to help the people in Ukraine, we would love to relieve their suffering. But at the same time, there are things we can do at home that will have a butterfly effect that we can't imagine what it will be in the future, you know, and, and who knows, you know, just keep being your best self you can be. So listen up to some of these quotes. The capacity to love others depends on the capacity to love ourselves. That's from Thich Nhat Hanh. And I think that's so beautiful because very often when you get into the spiritual game and you start talking about all these different spiritual concepts, you think of anything towards the self as egotistical. But the, the, the paradox of all of it, and we said that we love paradoxes, the paradox of all of it is that in order to really fully be able to love other people, you have to fully love yourself. And unless you're willing to give yourself love, you're going to be closed off to giving other people love. So if you want to work on fixing the world, work first and foremost on yourself. Baruch Abba, Dr. Nasser, just in time. All right, so here's another one from, from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says... That listening to the bell trains us to fully listen to our own needs. And only once we address these components of, of self-love are we really able to love other people, right? So that's why, you know, very often with these meditation people say, you know, I want to I actually play you a, uh, this is, he's the, the Tibetan 
Lama that or the no, Tibetan no. guru um, that that just died. Um, so here, I just want to play you a beautiful sound, you know, and that really it touches me every time I hear it. And uh, with really, Melchior, sorry, <laughs> you know, and and it's not as beautiful of a sound, but so they're they're really the sound of the bell allow it to ground you right now allow it to Michael I can't hear anything all of a sudden oh, sorry you can't hear you can you hear me now let's see yeah I hear you hear me okay Sorry about that. You can't hear the bell, though. Um, but we played. I, I heard a bell for a second, and then it went dark, you know, like nothing. Sorry about that. All right. Either way, that was really the only thing I wanted to play this whole class. I'll oh, the bell. Play. Okay. I thought there was going to be some type of motivational. Uh... It was just, just the bell. <laughs> the bell. And I love that because that's really all you need sometimes to ground yourself, you know, and that's, you know, I, my, my goal is always in the beginning of these classes to move you from your brain. I'll, I'll let you look at me like this a little bit, but it's fine. Yeah. But move you from your brain into your heart, into your feeling self, into your intuition. And that allows you to be more open to some of these concepts, I think, to hit you experientially. Um, he says that very beautifully, mindfulness is the equivalent of when you have a little crying baby, right? What does the baby want? It wants its mother, it wants it, the nurturing from the mother. It wants somebody to console it. And very often it goes unnoticed. And then when we, when we, when we grow up, we have that little child still inside of us that never got that nourishment, that never got that maternal embrace. So he compares mindfulness very beautifully to a maternal embrace and to helping us heal in that way. So whenever you're going through a difficult emotion or whatever you're going through, whatever you're going through, you're able to give yourself that maternal embrace and give yourself a little modicum of that consolation just through mindfulness, just through noticing, even if it's pain, you don't even realize that just noticing the pain, the pain wants to be noticed. It's asking you to notice it. And just by being mindful of it, you're parenting yourself in a beautiful way. And I really love that. Um, and, you know, the value of just listening to the bell opens our capacity to listen to the people around us and to really hear what they have to say. Um, so then now before we go into uh, throne mysticism and, and the other parts of the mystical experience, I want to talk to you just a few quotes from, from Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching, that I thought were interesting. He says, simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in action and thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. Right? So what do you hear from this? You hear simplicity, patience, compassion to the self, to other people. And this is exactly what we're saying. When you give yourself this stuff, you're able to give this stuff to other people. And I think this is fundamental to any spiritual experience because at the end of the day, spirituality doesn't begin and end with us. It really is something that is supposed to overflow into the people around us. And it's all about the interconnectedness of our egos in a beautiful way. 
And, and uh, I don't want you to think that you shouldn't love yourself or give yourself compassion because this is a common pitfall that a lot of us make is thinking that that's egotistical. And I'm here to tell you that's not egotistical. What's not? What? To, to give yourself love and compassion, right, sure. you know? And, and because what that's going to do is going to connect you to other people in the same way. Um, and yeah, treating everybody with that level How of How do you give yourself yeah. it though? I think that's where it comes from. Like, mm. Yeah, so we were just saying that that Tiknat Han. No, no, don't worry. The Han says that mindfulness itself is the equivalent of a mother hugging a little crying baby. That the pain inside of you that just wants to be noticed until you bring it that mindfulness, it's really kind of abandoning that little child inside of you. So if it's anger, if it's sadness, if it's you know uh, uh, happiness, whatever you're going through, it just wants to be noticed. And it just wants to be felt. And through that, that's a form of compassion to the self. Because you're noticing it, you're putting a separation between yourself and it, and you're letting it wash away. So I think that's very healthy. Another quote from uh, Lao Tzu, Dao De Ching. To understand the limitation of things, desire them. Right? If you want to know how limited certain things are, all you have to do is desire them. When you desire something, you realize... It's actually very limited, right? So if I'm desiring the water and I really want the water, I realize, ah, the water is, is, is not that infinity. It's not really open to this grand expanse of things because it's limiting me. It's making me so focused on this. I don't feel enough in the moment. That's the way I interpret it, right? That, that you, you encounter limitation once you start desiring. And the, the key here is to let go of that desire and it's you can't just say it and one and done it's something that you're working towards that you could sit in equanimity with whatever's happening and just know intuitively the right thing to do without desiring and being at odds with what currently is yeah i think when you desire something you turn it into a separate object like you, you, mm. you local i you know it by definition reduces all of everything to just this one object of focus mm. on desire like with with Chava, like she, you mm. know, she saw the tree and desired it, and then that became like the whole, you know, like all she was able to focus on. Mm. Because now she forgot about the whole Gan Eden. Yes, she now focused on just the kind of exactly. the tree, desire. And that led to a form of limitation in a way that you know it right. it limited the human capacity to connect with God. Literally, yeah. that was the the impetus. Right? Was that desire? Right. And then when you desire something, yeah. it's like you're subconsciously putting yourself in like a more scarce mindset like you need you mm -hmm. need this to make to like fulfill you yeah exactly and you being more like an abundant state mm -hmm. that's exactly right is that that the 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 Tao, as they say or this equanimity or shalom with hashem is a state of peace and is a state of abundance of shefa and when you're not in that mindset you're stuck in this lack of peace with what is here's another one love embracing tau you become embraced supple breathing gently you become reborn clearing your vision you become clear nurturing your beloved you become impartial opening your heart you become accepted accepting the world you embrace Tao. bearing and nurturing creating but not owning Giving without demanding, controlling without authority, this is love.
I think that's so powerful because love is not something that consumes or limits. It's not something that needs to own or control. Love instead is something that can embrace in a way, but nurtures as it embraces. It helps the other thing grow and it creates it into something larger than itself. And it gives to it. So love is not about receiving from, it's about giving to. And that's really just, I think, a beautiful way of, of understanding this is the way we should approach love of humans, love of God, love of anybody, right? Um, two quick ideas before we dive in. Just one interesting thought about freedom of choice. We're so often lamenting in our, you know, uh, in our classes or in our common conversations. We lament, oh, yeah, the neuroscientists, they're discovering that there's no free will anymore. We're always so sad about this. Maybe that's in your book. I'm not sure. But it's not there. Okay. But no, I, so that's the thing. I think it's all the deepest truths are paradoxes. So I think you, you can never state the truth of what the free will is because you can never really state who you really are. But I think there is and there isn't. You know what I mean? It's a very hard thing to say. But, but listen to this. This guy Krishnamurti says that real freedom is the freedom not to choose. So what, is, what does he mean by that? So you know what I think? I think it means like this. I think it means when you're not being neurotic about things, when you're not worrying, should I do this or should I do that? When you're not like Eliyahu says, you're just going and doing instinctually and intuitively without choosing, because choosing means that there's a point of indecision. In order to make a choice, there has to be a point of indecision. But real freedom is when there's not even a decision to be made because it's already being made naturally. So I'll give you an example. When you're playing tennis, right? If you're thinking too much, should I hit it there or should I hit it there? Should I drop shot him? Should I lob it over his head? Should I, you know, uh, hit a cross court or slam it down the line? You're probably going to hit into the net or way out because you're thinking too much. The best tennis happens when you're just hitting instinctually. You're not thinking, where should I go? There's no thoughts really involved so it much. It builds up to that point. Like you do have to, in the beginning, it's very bad. Kind of- so sometimes there's planning and sometimes there is strategizing. But I think at the moment of the choosing... So why are we calling that freedom? Mm. So I think... That's just, okay, there's something else. Okay, it might be nice yes. to, to yes. live instinctually sometimes or to let that um, control some of your actions so you're not overthinking or whatever. But I wouldn't call that freedom. I feel like they're just two separate, totally different things. Great, great point. So you don't have to use the word freedom. The, the reason I like the word freedom here, I mean, which is what Krishnamurti uses, is that it implies a certain peace, an inner freedom, an inner feeling of I'm not at odds with myself about what to do. And to me, the, the inner feeling of freedom is the freedom of not being at odds with things. It's it's a freedom means this expansive feeling. That's the way I see it. I don't know if that if that resonates or not, but but that's the way I see it. Um, and then uh, and if you guys have any, of course, questions or comments or anything, please feel free to, to say them at any point. Um, one last thing before we get into the Kabbalah. Um, the way I think about morality is very interesting because I think morality is vital. I think it's extremely important. And the Torah makes that clear. And you have to be moral in order to get to a level where you could be mystical 
right? Who, how could a rasha ever go and really connect with God? It's something that, that it doesn't really jive so well. It, it doesn't seem like it could really happen. A person who's not really so deserving or like he's not going to be able to be open-hearted in that way. But the interesting thing is, let's say you're a moral person and you're, you're getting to that level of the mystical. I would say that during your mystical experiences and during this path towards merging with God, you have to let go of morality, not in the sense that you should go and do evil, or not in the sense that you shouldn't care about morality anymore in the future. But during the mystical experience, I would say, it's important to stop telling God, this is how I think things have to be. And instead, the way I would compare it is like, you know, a spaceship, when it shoots into space, it has that payload with it. It has that little piece that was connected. And then you see famously in those videos, after it gets past the stratosphere or wherever, it lets go of that, that part that it was up with and that it falls away back down to earth and the rest of the spaceship shoots into space. So I think of morality the same way. Morality got you to that point, but at a certain point, in order to really fully let go of your perspective and let go and merge into whatever this mystical experience is, let go of that morality. And that's as uh, Buddha would say, is some people are bound to the wheel of samsara. Some people are bound to this painful experience of the world with chains of iron. Those are people who are bound to the world through craving and aversion, clinging and aversion. They're always desiring this and pushing away this, looking for the pleasure, pushing away the pain. I'll just finish this quick point. But the, the Buddha says also, there are some people who are bound to the wheel of samsara with chains of gold. And those are the people who are bound to it because they're insisting on morality all the time. And the, the way that I interpret that is that up to a certain point, you need morality. And that at a certain point, just in that vision, let go of every preconceived notion you have. Sorry, yes, Mike. So I feel there is a more of a <clears throat> tendency to resign to your desires and like to kind of shun them and shut mm. them off. But I feel like there's another line of thought in Judaism where we're, stri we're striving for something, mm. like, you know, from Mashiach and Tikkun Olam and all that. So like yes. that, that desire, does that kind of go against mm -hmm. contradict this? I don't uh, think so at all. Eastern... Uh, Ideology. I'm so glad you asked that because, again, I, I'm sorry to keep, I sound like a broken record, but I think it always comes down to paradox in a way that is the world perfect as it is? Yes and no. So it's the ability. So it has everything to do with changing the world, right? So tikkun olam, as you might say. So what do you, how do you do it? Do you say this world is not okay as it is and you out of anger and out of, you know, sadness and all that, then you go and try to fix the world? No. You fully accept what is. And in that peace and equanimity, from there naturally flows out an ability to help change little things and tweak little things here and there. But if that it, makes sense. I feel like there is a, I took a course on Asian religions back in college. So like mm -hmm. one of the things that, that we were really, they were focused on is, is really not having any desire, which I think, could be a way like there was a, there was a lot of people who would for example hold up an arm for weeks until their arm oh was yes 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 anymore just to show like i have conquered my will yes to, to <laughs> chris and that and that could you know be kind of leaning towards like 
like masochism as, in a way almost yeah, yeah. But like as, as jews we have this um i think we have like a slightly different formulation where we 100%. are striving we have an we have an objective goal and we always work towards bringing in exactly so that's why i love that's why i, I purposely put the Taoist stuff beside the kabbalistic stuff is because i think both are good parts of the conversation and you need a balance of both mm -hmm. and i think both really kind of have both in them but sometimes we focus on more of one perspective in kabbalah and more of one perspective in tao but really in reality there's a way of of embracing multiple perspectives within both so when it comes to your question of you know tikkun olam or perfecting the world and how do we do it and do we do it out of anger or equanimity i think you're right that that there is a plan and that there is something to desire and there is something to move towards but at the same time everything is perfect right now and this is right now what there is to move towards so at the same time there's a journey and at the same time there's a dance so it's like a, it's a paradox but the mystical experience is full of those things and and it's kind of something you'll experience one day when you have a mystical experience a little just because like, I took a course and I and learned about Hinduism and Buddhism and all the Asian religions, they really, I think a lot of it is in order to subdue like workers to stay in their place mm -hmm. because like they might desire to, to grow, but like most they need to kind of like yeah. accept your caste, especially in Hinduism, there's a caste system where people were like training themselves to, I guess, accept whatever they were. Yeah. Whatever they it's were a rough, given. And, and even if it's a rough situation. Like, yeah. But I think on the same time, you're right about that for sure. I'm sure it was used to control people. I'm sure it was used to exploit people. But at the same time, I think it brings a lot of healing when you're able to be fully at peace in little moments throughout the day. For sure. You know, and also at the same time, take care of the future and take care of, you know, so it does, you don't have to sacrifice one at the altar of the other. Mm -hmm. There's a way of being both and doing both. That's, yeah. I think that's very important. They're really great points. All right. So without further ado, let's let's dive into the Kabbalistic stuff. So we got a little bit here um, from the last class. So we were talking last time about addressing Hashem's needs. And what does that mean in a Kabbalistic perspective that Hashem wants something or needs something from us so that Hashem is not complete without our you know, worship of him? And, um, you know, there's a lot of different examples we gave from last week. And we'll give some more this week from traditional Jewish sources, how that comes through. So you talk about throne mysticism. What's throne mysticism? This is people who looked at the, the nevuot of a Yeshayahu, the nevuot of a Yehezkel, who saw God on his Merkava, on his chariot, or like Yeshayahu saw God on his, on his Giseh HaKavod. And they use this to, in a way, ascend, this, these types of meditations, ascend towards God's holy throne and experience God in that way. Um, so the Naktishach prayer is actually based on Yeshaya, right? And that Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh that we say comes from Yeshaya, seeing God sitting on his Kisya Kavod. Um, and what do we say? We say, Naktishach Kodesh, right? We're gonna, we let us sanctify your name in this world as the angels sanctified above. And the implication is, it's not sanctified yet in this world until we do as the angels are doing. Um, and then also Keter, where we say Keter on Shabbat and on Rosh Chodesh, Keter yitenu lecha Hashem lokenu, right? Just like the Malachim Hamonem Ma'ala, 
right? And just like the, the, the angels above are giving you a crown, so too the people down here are giving you a crown. So there's a beautiful mutuality going on and that we're following in the ways of the, of the angels by doing what we're doing. And this is fundamental for God to really be who God is, right? I think that's a, a very beautiful way of, of feeling into our role is that we're getting in line with this beautiful divine dance that's happening. When we're doing what we're doing with all our rituals, we're emulating the, the angels up on high. And that's, it's a way of elevating your experience of shul of these different rituals to a level that's very, very beautiful. Um, the Gemara says something very, very extreme. It says that the angels, the Malachim, cannot recite their tefillot. They can't say their prayers like Kedusha and Shema, Nakdishach and Shema, unless or until Am Yisrael has recited them below. So until we say the Nakdishach prayer or Shema, the, the angels are not even going to be able to pray. What's, what's the meaning of that? How could that be? Again, it's the same point, I think, that we are necessary partners in God's world. And God is waiting for us and looking for us to do that, right? And I think that's, that's very powerful. It's trying to empower us. So I think a, a big pitfall with some of these Eastern religions is that we put the ego down so much that we feel like well, there's nothing even for us to do. And we don't feel good about doing things. But Judaism has such a beautiful, loving component of these things, of these mitzvot, that allows us to engage fully with what we're doing without feeling ashamed of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have any a question? No, it's like a Kabbalah thing. Do you Please. recreate the angels? So, uh, you know, I don't know enough Kabbalah, but it, that's what I they say. They say that. you could create angels. I, I take all this stuff as everything is relativistically true. You know, you don't, you can't say anything absolutely in a way because it's all an experience. I feel like it's, exactly. I feel like it's what you were saying. With exactly. Them, being part of like our relationship with Hashem. Yes. And it's like kind of like what we create of it. Like we could create exactly. the angels that, like in a sense, we could yeah. create that mystical energy where we mm -hmm. have that relationship with Hashem or we could. Absolutely. And I think if you're meditating, you experience it as true or not. And that's what matters. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, the whole system of angels and the whole system of thought is the way of, you know, formalizing. It's like when you formalize something, you turn it into mm. a system that can yeah. be approached by many people. Like mathematics is formal, like. And science is a lot of my formal science. And this is like a way of approaching spirituality and like angels and all these things are part of the system of thought. Mm -hmm. And they play a role within the whole Kabbalistic Absolutely. world. 100%. And, and when you're playing within a system, it's important because that system is like the payload of the spaceship that led you to a certain point. And then at a certain point, you could let it all go. And at a certain point, you say, oh, it's only Hashem. There's no angels, you know, and there's not even there's not even a you and a me. There's just Hashem. But that's eventual. You don't have to jump to that. You need the payload to get you to that place. But the hope is that eventually it'll fall away. Right. So if you go too crazy with angels and you start, yeah, eventually, I think at a certain point in the mystical experience, you have to let go of all preconceived notions, including that, including morality, including everything. If you really want to have that experience of ego dissolution, dissolution, right? Is that the goal? That uh, so, I mean, it's, it, it is for some, it is, it's not for others. That's the whole thing is that, and if it is the goal, what, why do you do that? So the whole point of it, we're going to mention this class and next class is that it's supposed to be a transformative experience for you that when you do come back, 
you can bring more light and more goodness and more understanding and more compassion to the community around you. It's not supposed to be self-serving. It's not supposed to be, I want to get on high. It's, I want to help the people around me even more. Hashem, please give me even more of your wisdom Mm -hmm. to help me do that. It's all for the sake of other. That's the, the real mark of true spirituality. As if it's focused on myself, it's not true. It's not true spirituality. But if it's focused outward, and that's the paradox, because at a certain point, you lose the boundary between self and other. And then the, it becomes the most selfish thing. Like, I'm only helping you because I see myself in you. But at the same time, that's the least selfish thing because I'm helping you. But I love you so much because I see myself in you. Yeah, like, I realize it's a big thing with the... I was talking to Amiz about this. Mm-hmm. It's the whole spirituality thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, the selfish, like in a sense, the reason that you're helping him is, is that is there self is there a selfishness to that? Everything like can be sense, seen as selfish. Yeah. The reason we're meditating or praying or learning is because we like it. You can't avoid it. There's nothing like in it. the world that you can say is completely selfless. Even is, self-sacrifice. Is it, is it really selfless? Like in a sense, is 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 giving really selfless? You're kind of giving because you exactly. know it feels right. Exactly. And that's why anybody who claims I'm totally, totally selfless is being the opposite of that. It doesn't mean that you're doing it. It's a paradox, as always. Like that's that's really what it boils down to, is that it is it is and it isn't for you. If you receive any reward, it's considered selfish. So you don't have to label it as negative. You don't have to label it as selfish or negative. Whatever words you want to use, you can use. But I think at the end of the day, it's important to acknowledge that both exist at the same time. Good deeds are also good for you. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And that's Is that true, though? But I don't think always does. I was talking to Morris about this. We were saying how, like, he was saying, like, I don't know, not to quote him or whatever, he was telling, saying how it's doing good doesn't necessarily need to, feel, need to feel good. Like the people that are. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I hear that, you know, too. It feels good. I kind of think it does. It doesn't need to, but is it going to be sustainable? I think it does, yeah. Or is it going to be sustainable? If you do something you hate every single day, it's not going to last. Even if you're helping people, is it really going to last? You're not, you're going to, you're not going to be your best self if you hate it so much. Don't do something you hate just because you feel like it makes you selfish because it's nice. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Because then that's selfish because then you're doing it for the whole crazy reason that ultimately is equally selfish as anything else. So you might as well do what you enjoy. In a, that's that's helping other people. I mean, obviously, you know. So the types of chesed that I choose to do, I'll learn with somebody on a Friday, who doesn't have anybody to learn with them. But if you ask me to go deliver packages every Friday, I'm going to be much less happy. So I elect to, to go do the learning. Other people, they would hate to do the learning. They love doing the packages. Yeah, but so, sometimes that doesn't. Sometimes let's say that doesn't. It doesn't work like that. Like let's say yeah, somebody, so you play it by ear. You, know, yeah. you play it according to the situation. If they need, if you, if nobody else is going to deliver the package to the almana, yeah, exactly. and she's going to die if she doesn't have a meal, of course I'll go do it with happiness. Yeah. But if it's just like, oh yeah, they need somebody who wants to do it, I'm not going to volunteer because uh, I'd rather not do that job. I'll elect a different job. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. That's that's my personal humble opinion. Um, uh, <laughs> it's funny to use the word humble. Um, so now there's another idea with, from the Hachamim that Am Yisrael, by doing these mitzvot, we're creating sections of God's crown. Um, you know, same idea. The impulse comes from below. We hear from the Kabbalim that it aruta del tata, that you have sometime the impulse from below 
that causes a an impulse above. It causes a spurring of divine energy above. And that's what we hear before Moshe goes up to Harisinai, before God even calls him up. God doesn't say, Moshe, come up, up to Harisinai. It just says, Moshe, Allah. Moshe, of his own accord, goes up to Harisinai. And then from there, the whole amazing revelation happens. If Moshe didn't take that first step, and also the, the first step that he took at the Sene, and I give a lot of classes about the Sene and Sinai and the connections, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Sometimes it, it takes that from us to spur the spiritual changes. And I think that's the beauty of it, is that we are partners with God in that. There's a pasuk, Tenu Oz Lelohim, from Tehilim. The Midrash says, when the people of Israel perform God's will, they add strength to God, right? Because it says, give strength to God. Tenu Oz Lelohim. What does that mean, give strength to God? That in a mystical sense, when we perform the mitzvot, we're giving strength to God. But when they do not perform God's will, as it were, they weaken the great power of God. Yeah. How could that play? What could that mean? It's all, again, a matter of speaking because we don't have words that can accurately prescribe, you know, describe the exact picture here. But in a certain perspective, yes, you are diminishing the malchut of God when you choose to do evil rather than choosing to do good. Because God's whole malchut is the whole world. But at the same time, it's impossible to ever remove from God's malchut because God is infinite. But at the same time, this is true too. And both things are happening concurrently. So it's perfect and imperfect at the same time. Right? Very funny. Um, and my, my interpretation is also that it, could, it appears from our perspective that there's a diminution or a, dim, a diminishment of God's power. But really, in, on another level of reality, there's no dim, uh, diminishment. It's just from what I, the illusion that I bought into. Um, no, the, doesn't that mean yeah. you can do whatever you want? <clears throat> because it's not really diminishing his, his power. So I don't think it means you can do whatever you want. I think it means, so that's the thing. It, it, it's impossible for me to ever tell you or prove to you that you can or shouldn't do what you what you're, you're going to want to do. But my hope is that you'll continue to do good. Mm -hmm. And if you are set on evil, God forbid, then that's not under my control to stop you or prove for you, to you now that that's bad. But I have faith that in some way or shape or form, the system will show you maybe or someone else, not you, but someone else, like you know, that that's not right. Abira, you definitely lessen the power of good in the world. You, you, you make that God's mahout. You have... <clears throat> Are we the actors that carry out his mahout? Like knowingly and unknowingly, probably. So again, it's all if this. We do something bad that since we're the ones who are carrying it out, it could diminish his. Um, what was the word? I don't know. Is, yeah, is his mahout is is basically his like kingdom in a way because and, and that's from one perspective and then from the other perspective, like we said, it's impossible to ever diminish from God's kingdom because God is God. You know, so both are true at the same time, and it's impossible to understand with the thinking mind. It's only something to experience, and that's the thing with paradoxes, is they sound so crazy to the thinking mind, but once you let that go, it's like, oh, I get it now. The whole time it was the, it was both, right? It's a crazy thing. Um, the mitzvot are meant to bring the shekhinah closer. They're meant to bring God's holy presence closer to us, and the averot are meant to push away God's, not meant to, or the, the Averot result in the pushing away of God's Shekhinah. And that's the beautiful way of, of describing it, is that the Shekhinah is this presence of God 
that's so imminent and so close to us. It's the lowest sefirah, Baruch Abba, right? It's the lowest sefirah, famously. And because the Shekhinah is so close to us, what we're doing with these Averot is we're push, pushing it away. And that's why, like, it's a beautiful way of, of experiencing God in your daily life and your prayers and your mitzvot, because now it allows you to really feel like God is right there. And, and now we, another paradox, is God transcendent? Is God kadosh, kadosh, kadosh? Or is Hashem karov Hashem l'chol koreav? And the answer, of course, is it's both. Right? You look in, in, in Tehillah David or Ashdeh, as people call it, it's the same mizmor contains both perceptions of God. That on the one hand, Hanun v'rahom, sorry, no, sorry, Hanun v'rahom, right? And, and all these different qualities of God's closeness. And karov Hashem l'chol koreav, but at the same time, malchut decha, malchut kol olamim, and my teacher, Ronnie Ben, always says that you look, kaflam midmem, backwards is melech, and that those three pesukim are all about malchut, right? So again, we contend with this seeming difficulty, but in this peaceful state of mind, we understand both at the same time. And we see that because God is so transcendent and supernal, that's also the same reason that he's so imminently involved. And they, they explain each other in a way that we can't really comprehend. Um, and I think that's just beautiful because it's something to feel into, something to experience through the mitzvot that you're doing. You know, and, and they always say, when you see Hashem's greatest uh, gedulah, you also see Hashem's greatest uh, humility, right? So, for example, like you, you could think to yourself, when you're doing an act of hesed, at the same time as that being, it's such a mundane act, right? It's such like, oh, what did I do? I, I gave a chocolate bar to an elderly woman who was hypoglycemic, you know, like, was that such a, no, it's so mundane, but at the same time, this is the most transcendent, unbelievable thing. So it, it, it feels like both at the same time. And there's such a beauty in that and, and, and finding God in the ordinary. Um, they, and the way that the, the Mikubalim perceive of this is that now if the Shekhinah is closer to us and it's in line with our actions, that the rest of the sifirot also are needing to be in balance. Um, and they talk always about justice and divine love and mercy, right? So justice is like, the, I think, the left hand of Hashem, Kibiachol, or left arm of the, of the sifirot. And uh, the, the mercy is the right hand. And, and, and you know, the, the Kohanim we mentioned, I think they put their right hand a little bit above the left hand to try to signify Kabbalistically that this is what we're hoping for. That Hashem, we don't want it to be that your justice, which is perfectly divine and, and perfect, but the justice, pure justice, brings about very harsh punishment. And that's what we say in Yom Kippur, Hashem, please get up from the Kiseh Hadin and go sit on Kiseh HaRachamim. Because again, these are, these are paradoxical elements, and it's, we keep coming back to these clashing kind of yin and yang relationships. This is one of the most fundamental, is justice. And compassion. You look at an Eliyahu Anavi, we were just talking about Eliyahu, we were just talking about Abishimon Bar Yochai, and who was kind of like the father of all this. And he's learning that in his own lifetime, Abishimon Bar Yochai. Either he's lighting up people up with his laser, laser vision, or he's noticing, wow, how beautiful is that, that this guy is bringing his Hadassim on, uh, for, for Lichwad Shabbat. So, okay, yes, it is true that an evil deed deserves punishment. But at the same time, 
If God is going to keep all these sins, uh, you know, against us, who, which which one of us is going to be able to live another day? It's impossible, you know. Um, so listen to this. This is very. This is from Masichet Berachot Tabzayin Amud Aleph. Hashem makes a prayer to Himself. Very strange, right? What does He say to Himself? And I love the fact that these are all traditional Jewish sources. So Kabbalah is very much rooted in a certain perspective within Judaism. What's Hashem's prayer? May it be my will that my mercy may suppress my anger and that my mercy might prevail over my other attributes so that I might deal with my children in the attribute of mercy and on their behalf stop short of the limit of strict justice. Right. So Hashem is praying to himself. That's a crazy concept. But he doesn't know what he's saying. <laughs> like, I, what, what does he need to pray? But that's the point, is that it's trying to, in a way, put this in our terms and on a human level so that we could relate to this. And, you know, not only just emulate this in our own lives, but notice that this is kind of a, a supernal reality in a way that's going on. And it continues. It doesn't stop there. The Bishmael ben Elisha, who was the Kohen Gadol of the time, he said, I once entered the innermost part of the Beit HaMikdash, but I once got to the Kodesh HaKodashim to offer Ketoret, incense. And I saw Akakrielia. For some reason, I don't know why. What's, why could he call him Akakrielia? I have no idea. And he calls it Hashem, uh, the Lord of hosts, Hashem Tzivaot, seated upon a high and exalted throne. We know that from, we were just mentioning it before, Yeshayahu. Right, Yeshayahu had the same vision of God. Yosheva uh, said, Ram ben Right, and he's and he says, God said to me, "This is what the Kohen Gadol is saying." Yishmael, my son, bless me. Hashem is asking for a blessing. We we see these reversals. Hashem's praying to himself. Hashem is, you know, Hashem wears tefillin in the in Parashat Kitisam when Moshe sees his back. We discussed that last week, and he's telling now for a human being to bless him. And what does uh, Yishmael Kohen Gadol say? He says, I replied, may it be your will that your mercy might prevail over your other attributes so that you may on their behalf stop short of the limit of strict justice. And God nodded to me with his head. He went like this. Here we learn that an ordinary person must not be considered lightly in your eyes. What is this trying to say? It's trying to say, look. Oh, sorry, that. Oh, that a blessing. I didn't, I didn't see that word there. But yeah, okay. The blessing of an ordinary person might, must not be considered lightly in your eyes. That's amazing. But well, Hashem is not an ordinary person. No, Moshe has blessed him. The Kohen Gadol blessed him. Oh, wow. Yes. The Kohen Gadol compared to God is a nobody. But if even the, even the Kohen Gadol could bless God, then so too anybody could bless anybody else. Because the power difference between me and you is astronomically different than the paradigm of Kohen Gadol. That's amazing. I love that. But it reminds me a lot also of like Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai and God saying, hey, let me at him, let me at him. And Moshe is like holding him back, you know, like the, the Gemara paints that picture. And Hashem in a way is teaching us through humanizing himself in order to elevate us. So it's like Hashem is so humble that he's willing to hide his glory and to descend from his supernal throne and humanize himself and pray to himself and ask for a beracha just to teach us how we should be.
that's the best vulgar verse of one of these verses by Chal Moshe oh. from the word Chol to make to make uh, not sacred. That Hashem said, I'm going to destroy, I'm going to destroy B'nai Yisrael. Moshe says, no, no, don't destroy them. Hashem says, okay, I don't want to destroy them, but I made a promise. Wow. At Har if you violate the second commandment, then that's it, El Kana. Mm. I can't undo my promise. Uh-huh. So Moshe, by Chal, Moshe uh, uh, sat down like a judge. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> wow! And came and said, "Listen, I didn't mean it. I swore. <laughs> That's incredible. Consequences. Can you please, you know, undo my vow?" And Moshe said, "Mutarim lachem." Unbelievable. By Chal Moshe, he took the vow and made it. There you have it. That's that's really that's like the ultimate. We see this repeatedly. All these midrashim, all these gemarot, are saying this stuff, and. So that's why, you know, I always was so skeptical of Kabbalah. I was always so against it. And I always, you know, and even in, at times in my life, I said, it's Avodah Zarah. And you know what? Even if there are certain things in it that people will draw, you know, connections to things that they see as idolatrous. I think at the end of the day, you have to acknowledge that the Torah itself and the Gemara is full of these types of imagery. And that once you accept that, you're able to be a little bit more compassionate towards this perspective and a little bit more embracing of it and to be able to use it yourself because I think that's really what the goal is. Um, oh, and I wrote down here, it's reminiscent of Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai pleading for mercy. Hashem is bringing the wisdom out of Moshe till he figures it out on his own. He's doing the same thing with these characters. Um, it's not just a wish, right? It's not just Hashem's wish but it's also seen as a contribution to the fulfillment of this wish, right? I'm sorry, it's not just the person's wish. It's the person's blessing was necessary for the fulfillment of Hashem's goal. That without, it's almost as though without the Kohen Gadol learning that, this wouldn't have happened. So he, it's almost, he literally needs us in this perspective. Kohanim, like we said, raised their right hand over their left hand in order to signify that Hesed should prevail over Givurah, that compassion and loving kindness should sometimes prevail over strict justice. Next section, we'll talk about Sorech Gavoha. What is Sorech Gavoha? That means a very on high need of God. Right? And there's a be- beautiful song, you and you and I, Mike, we listen to it, Mechaven Gavoha by Scheinfeld. Oh, exactly, in the car. So beautiful. And I think it's playing off of this philosophy that God requires human deeds in Tefillah and I'm oh, sorry, human deeds and tefillot in order to be king, to be powerful, to be in balance, to be one, and even to really be God. Okay, so we mentioned that all already, but it's a very radical thing. The mission of man is to be a need of God. And this is actually the best feeling in the world to be fully a vessel for God, to fully remove your ego so that God can dwell and act through you. So there's so many beautiful ways of doing this. Let's say tomorrow morning, I'm starting my first day on my emergency medicine rotation. I'm going to walk in there groggy at 7 a.m. But if I say to myself right beforehand, Hashem, please use this mouth to speak words of kindness and love to everybody I encounter. Use these hands for healing. Use these legs to go to the places that I need to go to to help the people around me. Hashem, please inhabit me throughout this experience so that i could be your vessel that's the best we could ever hope for and and it's you know we're afraid of all losing your individual but you realize that this is what makes you the most 
powerful. And that shouldn't be the goal, though. The goal is not for you. It's for, it's for the other. But paradoxically, the, the more you remove of your ego, the more you feel like a complete and whole self. It's a very paradoxical thing. Um, there's certain pesukim now that take on a new understanding. On that day, God's name will be one, and Hashem will be, and His name will be one, and God, God will be one, and His name, His reputation will be one. Oh, on that day, it's not that way today. Not as much as it will be then, but at the same time, it is today. Oh, it's a paradox. It's both, and that's what we keep coming back. On to. that day, the whole world will know. Mm-hmm. And now. But it says, it's, it's really, it's, it's both true and untrue at the same time. There's the beracha that the Mekubalim always say, which means for the sake of the unification of God, right? And the sefirot are supposed to be this type of unification. It's between Tiferet and Shekhinah. It's the unification of these two sefirot. We know the Pasuk. From in and it says otam to do them if you're gonna go in my ways and keep my mitzvot. And the Hamim say it's as if we made God. Laasot otam means we made God God through these mitzvot. Very audacious, but we understand it now. Dov Mezrich, the Magidin Mezrich says, nothing is able to change from one form to another. Right? For example, an egg that would hatch into a chick without first completely nullifying its present form. So nothing can change completely from one form to another without fully nullifying its present form. Right? So in order for an egg to be a chick, it needs to stop being an egg. If it's still holding on to being an egg, it can never become a chick. Only then will another form be able to come forth from it. It is this way with everything in the world. It must attain the level of ayin, nothingness, then it will be able to become something else. And this is what we mean, what you asked me before, Mike, is what does it mean for me to want to have ego dissolution? It's because I know that I want to be better. I want to be the best person I can be for those around me. And in order for me to get there, I have to become fully ayin, fully nothing, fully removing of my ego. And then from there, Hashem could inhabit me and use me and change me fundamentally into a person that's more capable of helping the world. And this is a radical transformation. Becoming nothing opens you, ironically, to becoming everything, right? And that's the whole paradox. You become everything by becoming nothing. And now the mitzvot that you perform, like we said, are like Hashem performing the mitzvot himself. When you perform mitzvot now, if you fully remove your ego, you feel like this is Hashem speaking through my mouth. This is Hashem putting on the tefillin with my arms. It's a very, very unique perspective to take. But there's ways of fully nullifying yourself and getting there. Rasov Ashov. Yes, sure. Another guy goes, no, he looks at the guy who's saying he's nothing. He goes, 
Who are you that you get to say that you're nothing? I'm, I'm one of you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It becomes like a battle of like who could humble themselves more, but like it's not, it's a contest where you lose. Exactly. I love it. Who is the I that is nothing? That's that's another way of putting it. It's like, who's nothing? You know, you? And then you're something. You know, it's like, that's the whole thing. Is That's why the highest level you could probably get to is he who says it does not know. He who knows it does not say from Lao Tzu that he who says it does not know. He who knows it does not say. Why does it say if he knows it? Because any words that you could put to it, are completely a bastardization of whatever it is. Yeah. And it could never and should never be put into words. But yet he wrote the whole book of the Dao De Ching because it's fun and we might as well and why not? You can point to read the book the Dao It's a great I just listened to it on you could listen on you on YouTube if you want. I heard about it. The Dao De Ching. I heard about it. Good. I I think it's good. I mean it's it's like you heard about the you know the Gemara is I'm not, I don't want to compare anything like that, but it's like one of those classics, you know, like it's like it's an amazing book, in my opinion. Okay, I recommend it. <laughs> but if you get in trouble for reading it, don't uh, don't tell don't give anybody my name. <laughs> Just promise me that. Now, <laughs> is a beautiful term that we hear from the vision of Yehazkel. He says that he saw the uh, in Ma'asimid Kava, I think it was some kind of celestial beings going back and forth, back and forth. And the, the Mekubalim use it as an ebb and a flow of the mystical experience. Ratzov Ashov uh, means running and returning. Uh, it's an ebb of awareness of the gap between the human and the divine. So sometimes we feel so far away, so compartmentalized, so much in my pain, so ego-driven and in a box. And then sometimes... We feel expansive and connected with God and fully aware of our connection with Him, right? And it, it ebbs and it flows. Um, and there's a flow of ecstasy once communion has been attained, like John Blofeld's vision of everything on mescaline, everything rising and falling like waves of bliss. Everything happening was these just waves of bliss. And the hiding and the seeking and the finding and all of it is part of these beautiful waves of bliss. And whatever you think is pain right now, one day you'll look back and say, I can't believe that was actually bliss. And I don't want to take away from your pain. I don't, I don't want to sound not compassionate, God forbid, but it's just a, a mystical way of looking at it. And I don't think that that should ever cause you to say, oh, don't worry, your pain will be bliss one day. You, know, you have to use, obviously, compassion at all times. Yeah, sure. So... There's also an ebb and a flow of memory and forgetfulness, right? Sometimes we remember the game that's being played, and sometimes we forget. And sometimes we get so lost and take it way too seriously. And then sometimes we come back and we remember, oh, my God, I forgot. It was just a dance, and it was just a symphony to be enjoying in the moment. Um, that's memory and forgetfulness, and that could even happen between lifetimes, I think. You know, at the end of a lifetime, you remember all of it. You become one again with God. And then you come back to being an ego and you're born, wow, wow, wow. And now you forgot. And the memory and the forgetfulness just keeps flowing, ebbing and flowing, ebbing and flowing. So there's entry and absorption into the divine and then exit back into the mundane life. 
the rusty beer cans of life, right? You look at it, it's just mundane. It's a rusty beer can. It's chipping paint. It's just a guy who's, who has like a, I don't know, a cut on his thumb. But at the same time, it's unbelievably divine to a degree you can't even comprehend at that moment. And there's an ebb and a flow to that experience in the spiritual, you know, for the spiritual seeker. We all have moments where we feel more connected and we all have moments where we feel less connected. And it's about just allowing it to flow. Um, seeing the world from a divine perspective and transformation and then return to the world. Seeing this world now that you've had this transformative experience, you see the world again as an illusion. And because you, you took on this divine perspective, you come back and you say, I realize now that that was the realist reality. This is also reality, but it's relative reality. You no longer take it as absolute. Eternity and limitlessness versus being bound within space-time. Both are part of existence. Both, both are part of experience. And even if one does not return from that mystical union, like we know, um, Ben, I think it was Ben Azai, when he went into the Pardes, he didn't come back, right? Well, uh, according to the Mekubalim, that's seen as strengthening God. That when your soul returns to Hashem, in a way it strengthens God, whatever that means. Shneir uh, Zaman of Liadi says, when a person cleaves to God, it is very delightful for God and very savorous for God, so much so that God will swallow it into his heart as the human throat swallows. And this is the true cleaving, as a person becomes one substance with God in whom he was swallowed without being separate from God to be considered a distinct entity at all. This is the meaning of the phrase, and you shall cleave to God, literally. So, in a way, there's a delight going on. There's a pleasure going on in this union and in this connection with God. And you realize there is an ecstasy already existing within this ebon of flood, within the hiding and the seeking, within the pleasure and the pain. There was an ecstasy overlying all of it. And again, that's not something that you can think about. It's something you have to experience. Yehudim are acts by these mekubalim that are meant to bring about union on these levels. Uh, connecting with the spirit of a sadiq on his grave to receive wisdom and insight is one way that people do this. It's not necessary. It's one way. And you know what? As long as you're not actually worshiping the sadiq, if you go to the, the graveside to meditate there and use the inspiration of who they were, as you know something that opens you to god why is that necessarily wrong i think as long as you're not worshiping that person as a being in and of himself that's equal to god you know i, I think you probably you admire someone you try to see god's light exactly through them 100 percent. beautiful um though all of this stuff is trying to paint us as humans as standing at the center of a cosmic drama we're standing at the center of this unbelievable thing that's unfolding in our world. And the experience of this cosmic drama is fundamental. The human experience is really essential to the divine realm. That unless we have this human experience, we're not going to really fully experience everything that reality has to offer. And that it's, it's essentially a part of this divine realm is human experience, even though we think it's separate. The Baal Shem Tov used to quote the Pasuk, which means Hashem is your shadow on your right hand or right, right by your side. Um, and what, he's, what he says about this, Hashem is your shadow. What does that mean? Your tzel. Hashem does what you do. He, in a way, 
is kind of mirroring what you're doing. Kibyachol, whatever that means. So when reciting the Amidah, recite it with the intention of having the Creator delight. And, you know, if you're taking a step towards God, He's going to take a step towards you. But as they say, If you take a step away from God, Hashem is going to take a step away from you. And then that's going to be like two steps apart. Right? So in a way, what does this mean to have the creator delight in what we're doing? It's so beautiful. It's, it's kind of like we're delighting in it. And it feels as though Hashem is delighting in it as well. And that's not something you could ever put into words. But there's an experience of divine bliss that's going on. Being a giver, even to God. What is that? How could you possibly ever give anything to God? We just mentioned on Shabbat, we said with the Mishkan, there were people who were contributors to the Mishkan, and there were people who actually were builders of the Mishkan. And it's like when they were contributing to the Mishkan, it never uses the word latet or natan from the word matana to actually give, because you could never give to God. It did use the word lehavi 14 times. Lehavi, 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 just to bring. Because you're bringing to God whatever already belongs to God. But it, it's not yours to give. And that's what it means to be a giver to God, is we can never really give anything to God beyond our total and utter presence in the moment. And through that, remove of the separate sense of self and connect with God in this moment. And that's really all Hashem is asking of us, is to connect with Him right now. We say in, in, uh, in the Kohanim prayer, Bless Am Yisrael with the intention to bring the light to Hashem. And Hashem will bless you in kind. So you see this mutuality, this stepping towards each other that is experienced in this way of, of experiencing. Shema Yisrael, literally bringing about the unity of Hashem's name, Yod with the Vav and they have all these interesting ways of meditating on Shema. The six words of Shema, Shema Yisrael, those six words are the six words for the six sefirot that are uniting with Shekhinah. The seven lower ones, the six sefirot uniting with the Shekhinah. And then uniting Tif'erit and Shekhinah in holy matrimony. And that's why we say, Baruch Shem Kivon Malchutole Olam Those six words are supposed to show me some kind of connection going on. Uh, and the Malchut is really fully in operation when Tif'erit and Shekhinah combine. And we'll end with this. This is all trying to turn Judaism into a meditation and a drama. That when you're able to live Judaism in this way, on this level of mysticism, you're able to do it in a way that's meditative, fully immersed in an experiential way, and also tells a beautiful story of a drama. Baruch Adonai Le'olam, Amen Amen. Any questions or comments? No? Guys, thank you so much for, for coming. Thank you, Sarah.